Say goodbye to performance robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome to another episode of the Nerdist Podcast filled with semi-organized sounds for your listening slits. The Nerdist Podcast Live is on tour. Matt, Jonah, and I are coming to a region near you, probably, hopefully. We're going to be in Northampton, Massachusetts on November 30th. January 6th is our rescheduled D.C. date at the 930 Club. And then, very soon, next week in fact, we're going to have a bunch more dates that we're going to be announcing. So get details for these and all other shows at Nerdist.com. Well, I would like to take a moment in this intro to thank the shit out of you. Guys, if you listen to this podcast with any regularity, you probably watch the Nerdist TV show, which aired on BBC America. Uh, and I want to thank you for that because BBC America has announced that we are doing five more Nerdist TV specials over the course of the next several months. Uh, they're going to follow some really cool uh, event programming that they're going to be having. Uh, the first one will be on Christmas Eve on December 24th, just in case you forgot when Christmas Eve is. Uh, and then throughout uh, next year. So these are going to be a super, super, super fun. We're going to plan a lot of big stuff for these, so you'll get more details for these uh, as time marches on. But it, I just wanted to say a, a sincere thanks, because it's obviously a dream for us to get to make this show, because it's exactly what we love doing. So, uh, thank you! Some people come to me and they say, Hey, Chris Hardwick, how do you produce podcasts? And I say, well, a lot of times it's with the help of sponsors. Like this one, Hover.com. Uh, this episode of Nerdist is brought to you by Hover. It's domain name registration made super, super, super simple. You go there, their UI is really clean. All they do is register domains for you. They don't try to sell you a bunch of other crappy services that you don't need. You can set up email addresses, forward email addresses, redirect domains to other website addresses, create URL extensions, set privacy controls. It's all with just a few clicks. Uh, so please go to Hover.com. That's H-O-V-E-R. Try their domain management service. They make it easy for you to transfer your existing domains over to Hover. Just enter the name or URL that you want to transfer, and then Hover gives you the next steps and tracks the progress as the URL is transferred. So these guys are great. If you need to get a new domain, go to Hover.com, H-O-V-E-R, use the offer code NERDIST. And now the Nerdist Podcast, episode number 140. Holy shit, 140. Yeah. One of my favorite comedians, uh, a super nice guy that I've known for two decades. It's Dana Gould! Now entering Nerdist.com You just love those super serious show pictures. 
That's large format Polaroids. I've been super serious picture with my 8x10 for like, it's, it's like three years. It, yeah, it's, uh, it's put your uh, put your mouth up next to that mic. Mm. Let's yeah. see how you sound. That's why I wanted to do that show. Hey. Oh, no, it's got to aim at you like a bullet, like a gun. Will it, uh, yeah. How's that? Oh, yeah, you got it. Dana J. Gould is here in the studio. In my old old neighborhood. What, you used to live around here? When I first moved to L.A., I lived literally right around the corner. I think we got it, Nick. I think we got it. it. We were able to... I, we we yeah. were able to make it stay in a way the microphone. Yeah, let's hang on to that though, because yeah. we'll need yeah. it again if that's all right. Thanks, Nick. Not to stab a zombie in the eye. Yeah, <laughs> actually in the ear. Original Down the Dead style. Right, right, there, right into the ear. Pulls up into yeah. the ear. Good access to the brain that way. Yeah, yeah, right in yeah. slowly. Here's here's there was this was actually a new, a New York Comic Con commercial, which didn't make sense. Flesh-eating zombies are here to eat your brains. Well, they're, I thought they were flesh-eating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, brains are for dessert. Brains are for dessert. Yeah. Listen, they, they, they can't get to the brain without enjoying some of the yeah. flesh. Can we make, can we make up your mind, please? Zombies just ask you. It's like, could you just please release the brain? I, the, I, just... I honestly think the brains thing came from The Simpsons. I actually... The brains? <laughs> oh, no. It, uh, it, the first time I ever saw it come up was in uh, uh, Return of Living Dead. Oh yeah, brains. brains. Yeah, more brains. brains. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Uh, they eat brains to stop the pain. The pain of what? The pain of being dead. Pain of being dead. Yeah. That's the something in the fluid. But uh, but but zombies on the Atkins diet will don't eat the skin. They just go right to the brain. <laughs> yeah, they just go right <laughs> yeah. to the brain. Zombies. Yeah. Well, that would be the ultimate. They're they fancy. Would. It's like the caviar. Yeah. And the, uh, yeah. That would be a great, just a quick thing is like a zombie checking itself out in a store window. <laughs> it's time for that. Does my ass there's look your, big? It's actually show. mostly rotted away. So, yeah. no. The mm. voguing dead. I'm so I'm so glad that uh, you're finally on the podcast. I'm sorry it took me so long to get you on here, Dana Gould. That's that's my fault. Me too, Chris. What the fuck? My. Now it's time to fight. Now I can't wake up every morning and go, Hardwick is my enemy! <laughs> well, you can. I can find another reason to, to help create the... I think it's important for people to have a nemesis, and then that's good. <laughs> it's true. I feel weird without an enemy. Keeps you on your toes. Keeps you on your toes. It's I have many nemesis. Do you? Yes. Well, <laughs> you seem to be Matt's nemesis sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovable. That's when I was a kid. My, my older brother was my enemy, and now that he's no longer my enemy, there's an odd void in my life. You're a little off kilter. Wasn't there a, uh, I, f- I think there was a guy maybe on Craigslist who said, you know, I will be your nemesis. It was an ad and then someone, or was it was that a web video? I think I I'm starting know. to mash up weird memes in my head. <laughs> well, that was the whole point of, that was that great monologue in the otherwise <clears throat> poorly mishandled Unbreakable. Yeah. About how yeah. we need each other. And... Yeah. We're going to do a movie about how it would be like if there were superheroes and supervillains in real life. And then we'll have no one behave the way they behave in real life. <laughs> Just to completely ruin the whole point of the movie. But what yeah. bummed me out about that movie was that... It started, it existed, and it ended. <laughs> so there you go. Did you like Sixth Sense? I did. Well, let's, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. I was going to say, I wanted to see... Like, I'm sure in his mind he thought, I'll leave it open-ended so people never know. And I'm like, well, I, I w- kind of want to know. Like, mm-hmm. I wanted to see his kid shoot him in the kitchen and then have the bullet bounce off and be like, oh, fuck. You know, yeah. it's sad. There are movies, and uh, there are movies. Another one is uh, is uh, uh, Mars Attacks, where I go, "Oh, golly, I wish I'd made this. Yeah, <laughs> I would have. I would have done the joke. 
I yeah. would have told the joke properly. Or not stacked a bunch of jokes on top of well, each other to thing. muddle the entire thing. Yeah, Mars Attacks, you need a straight man and then a funny man. You mm-hmm. need Abbott and you need Costello. You can't have wacky aliens fighting slightly less wacky humans. Yeah. If you took, and Tom, uh, the, uh, actually Tom Kenny, I was talking about this with Tom Kenny, the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants. He's been the, on the podcast. And the Ice King and from then, yeah. Adventure Time. And a guy that I used to deliver lunches with. Really? In our crappy day job in Boston uh, years ago. Um, if you took the aliens from Mars Attacks and edited them into Independence Day in place of the aliens there, that's the movie. Yeah. Oh, that would be awesome. If the people are playing it straight as a heart attack. Yeah. And the Martians are crazy and don't care. Then it's actually <laughs> funny. <laughs> but that's Instead, what... you get the hilarious Glenn Close and the gut-busting Jack, <laughs> Jack Nicholson. Nicholson. <laughs> Playing with Jack Nicholson and Jack Nicholson. Oh, Lord. Yeah, two roles in that one. But that's, I that's, loved Martin Short in that movie, though. I thought Martin Short was pretty great in yes, Mars Attacks. Yes, but it was such a, such a like, just like, God, why aren't I laughing? I yeah. want to laugh. I want to laugh so hard. But that's the thing with those movies. It's like, you know, the uh, the comedy genre movies were just, that's why Shaun of the Dead was so good is because, like, you know, the... People reacting very funny towards a serious zombie situation. Exactly. When the monsters don't know they're in a comedy, it works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. American Werewolf Werewolf in London, London, same thing. I was going to say that. Oh, such a great movie. One of the best movies. Um, In fact, I was with the werewolf earlier this week. I showed them the picture. We already saw it. I showed them the picture when we were in New York. I was like, look, 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 look. I was going to dine out on that picture right now. (laughs) Well, it's a podcast, so. Yeah, (laughs) true. I'm holding my phone up to the mic. <laughs> Describe it. It's a wolfy character. Well, my friend Bob Burns is sort of like a famous collector, mm-hmm. and he has all of this stuff in his house. His house is just like a mi- mini museum of memorabilia. I mean, literally, the day I, they're do- there, he's doing a documentary is a documentary is being made about him. There. Oh, wow. That's the sentence. <laughs> sorry, I had a stroke. That's okay. I smell pennies. No, it's fine. You're <laughs> fine. You look okay. His face is drooping. His face on one side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I went over there to, to do it, and I was with the werewolf of American Werewolf in London. The alien queen from Aliens is there. The flying saucer from the day the earth stood still is hanging <laughs> from the ceiling. Sounds like a sitcom. The, la- the yeah. last extant creature from the Black Lagoon suit. And more than anything, I held in my hand a gift to Bob from the Mercer Special Effects Studio, the 35-cent Lindbergh UFO commercially available model kit that a little director named Ed Wood put in a little movie called Plan 9 from Outer Space. How did someone even find that? Why, why wasn't this stuff burned after they made that movie? Uh, it was just Bob was a fan living in L.A. in the mid-50s, knew everybody. They said, wow. hey, you have this? Sure, I'll take it. Holy shit. Wow. Did you, do you know Rich Carell? I do. Rich Carell is a guy who, uh, his, uh, I think he was on Leave it to Beaver when he was a kid. Uh-huh. And then he became a television director and has spent a large portion of his fortune from television directing, which is very lucrative, by the way. Uh, yes. In all seriousness, it really is. If you yeah. direct a pilot and that pilot gets picked up, you get money, you get every, money week. every week that show is on, whether wow. or not you touch another episode again. Jim I'm Burrows, in. Jim Burrows, who you know did that for shows like Cheers and <laughs> Frasier. <laughs> I mean, crazy. literally, it's just like they eat leaves and shit money. Yeah, it's just like. So Rich Carell is a, is a horror fanatic and has uh, 
and he lives in this this kind of mansion house and every year he sort of brings out his horror collection but he has like one of the original exorcist dummies Whoa. like he's he's got some insane stuff in his collection i'm sure he has a bunch of ape stuff as planet of the ape stuff as well <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> lord um and uh and so uh, uh actually Rob Zombie had one of the ape, one of the original apes costumes and wore it one year for Halloween. What? Yeah, I'd be I scared that it would, would fall you do apart. That? Don't do that. Don't I have wear one it. of the original. I have, well, two now. I have uh, the the pullover extras masks, like yeah. the crappy chimpanzees. But I got it in the, in the weirdest way. The way I got it was what was great. Um, my wife and I we used to live behind the Chateau Marmont, mm-hmm. and uh, our neighborhood had a parking problem, and we were having a little community neighborhood meeting. And there's this guy named Dan, this older guy named Dan, and he's talking about the parking from Dublin's was the <laughs> bar giving well, us that a is, hard that time. That is dating that conversation. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. it was about 10 years ago, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and I look at him, and then I walked up to him later, and I went, excuse me, are you Dan Streepak, <laughs> who was the head of the Fox makeup department in the late 60s that I knew from reading Starlog and Famous Monsters and everything? And it was like I, he stepped back like I slapped him almost. It was just that, <laughs> he was that surprised. He was like, yes, I am. And I was like, oh, my God, I know who you are, and blah, 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 blah. And he goes, oh, that's great. Four days later, ding dong. And I talked to him, you know, I told him my apes fandom and stuff. Four days later, my doorbell rings over the door, and he's there, and he's got an extras chimpanzee mask and a gorilla appliance. And he just goes, here, you should have these. If you like the stuff that was so much, I just got it at my house. Oh, my wow. God. And I was like, no, I can't take it. I don't want it. <laughs> so, did you put the mask on and then blow him? Because that seems like the only acceptable I, thing to do I at that point. I put the mask on. And I did put the mask on, and what happened was then I exhaled without taking into account that for 20 years, the latex had been <laughs> off-gassing in the muzzle. And, and the muzzle is then designed to funnel all of that chemical detritus right up face. into my eyeballs. Ugh. And I was literally like bent over full at the waist <laughs> in, as, if, in as if on a hinge. And I think I said like, <laughs> And I thought, what a way to go blind. Yeah. Still the happiest, one of the happiest moments of your life, right? Yeah, but I, I figure, <laughs> yes, I did. I vigorously tore it off. Oh my wow. god! You're, yeah. you're, you're. I wish there was footage of that because I must have looked pretty, pretty great. <laughs> there are so many things I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about your obsession with Ed Wood and Planet of the Apes and just sort of your comic book, uh, 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 and and Comic Con. Um, uh, obsessions, but also I want to talk to you about uh, stand-up as well, and then maybe yes. a little bit of The Simpsons, and then you know. But and also your Joel Hodgson um, Husker Du story. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. a great story. What's the Joel Hodgson Husker Du story? Very, very quickly. Um, Joel Hodgson of Mystery Science Theater. Uh, we were uh, when he was living in St. Paul, Minnesota. When he was just Mystery Science Theater was then a local show called Mystery Science Theater 2000 mm-hmm. that was just on. Uh, a television in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And he had a workshop warehouse in St. Paul where he built toys and stuff. And uh, Crow and Cambot all came out of there. And next, across the hall, was the rehearsal space for the band Husker Du. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and they were just friends. And so I was over there and they were like, hey, they're having a listening party uh, for their new album. I think it was Warehouse, named after the warehouse where their spaces were. <laughs> sure. So let's go over, and it's me and Joel, and we're just like dorky jackballs and cargo pants and a bunch of Minneapolis scenesters. And the thing about Who's Could Do was like they attracted scenesters, but they weren't. They were just dorky guys. Mm-hmm. And so Joel was standing in front of the stage 
bumming out all the hipsters by playing very aggressive air guitar, <laughs> <laughs> which I then immediately joined in on. And to the and it was great because they were dying with laughter. The hipsters were so bummed out that dorks were ruining their hipster private <laughs> invitation-only party. And it was only made worse when Joel looked at me and at one point went, after a song, and it got really quiet, the girls aren't looking. Make your guitar bigger. And then we, <laughs> like, fully extended our arms and we're playing. And they were, uh, Grant Hart and, those, and uh, Bob Mould and those people were uh, laughing very hard. Um, and that was really when I, I, I met Joel uh, just before um, Mystery Science Theater happened. And, and it, was, it was great because it was sort of like, yeah, I'm I'm in that group. Yeah, you know when you're kind of coming around, coming of age, and you don't really know what group am I in. Yeah, I'm not in this. I'm not in the hip group. And there was the hip group, and there was like the tough guy comic group, a sort of like the yeah, you know, the smooth dude group. Who was in that group? Uh, I don't want to name names. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. But it's, you know, guys and guys that would guys that leave the house in sweatpants. Sure. Kind of deal. And uh, and I didn't feel comfortable with them. And then I met Joel. I was like, oh yeah, that's that's my group. Every well, time I see a guy with sweatpants on outside during the day, I just imagine that he fucks all the time. Yeah. And he's just he got yeah. no underwear underneath. Nothing. Yeah, just I, ready to go. When I worked at the record store in Venice Beach, I would see that a lot. Just a couple coming in, just in sweatpants. Yeah. And I was like, you guys fuck all the time. Yeah, probably. we're taking a fuck break, and these yeah. are the easiest yeah. way to yeah. do that. Yeah. So what do people do when they're not fucking? I don't know. I guess they get a lemonade. All right, let's do that. <laughs> and the elastic around the ankles collects any uh, residual dripping yeah, that uh, that occurs. Yeah, they're yeah. perfect pants, and they're made of basically cloth. They're, they're just like yep. a, they're like towel pants. Yeah. Towel pants. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly like, there. It's like walking around in your beat off rag. <laughs> <laughs> I just wore them because I didn't fit into the husky kid pants. <laughs> husky <It>. tough skins. <laughs> the, the pants made of shame. <laughs> That's what I had to wear. I, husky tough skins. I'm fat and poor. Yeah. These these pants. They're basically the name is telling you that they're so durable that your chubby little body won't fuck yes. them up. That's yeah. the tough skins. You're poor and. Fat. Or as my mother would say, it's so your waist gets bigger. You know, you'll fit in the pants. Oh, oh geez, she was planning on. Hey, she knows. Yeah. She's a wise woman. Come here, Mama's little angel needs another pie. <laughs> what? Why are you doing this to An me? An entire pie. Come on, you gotta fit in the tough skins. You need oh. carbs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I first, uh, I, I had been a fan of your comedy um, in the '80s, and then I met you. I really was though, because there, there was so old. I know, I know, I know. It, it sucks. It so sucks. Fucking old. It sucks. It sucks. I'm not that much younger than you, and so no, you're not. Gross. Um, but. Uh, I'm not. I'm old. I'm not that old. I just started crazily young. I started when I was 17. Oh shit! And I was a working touring middle by the time I was 21. But you're. But you're. You had a voice in comedy for me that you know. So much of the 80s comedy boom was about very low impact. You know, comedy first, no real substance, but just like, hey, we're just going to distract people in comedy clubs so they Seinfeld, buy drinks and food during Seinfeld, the Reagan years. Yes. Yeah. Seinfeld was the, you know. Uh, progenitor of that with the suit jacket sleeve rolled up to the elbows and it was all and it was i mean he happens to be excellent at it but it was a celebration of minutiae and people forget it was so common back then there was a sketch on snl about it when tom hanks was on snl a stand lot. up and win yeah well they had that good here she comes and there she goes yeah i mean it was mm. basically i remember that people sketch. doing seinfeld yeah. and then once he got on the sh show Seinfeld, 
and it found its voice, all that sort of style became codified as like, no, that's great. But for a long time, it was it was almost a cliche, not because of Jerry, but because of the legion of sub Jerry's right. that were all over the place. It was a really a facile thing to rip off if you were an uninspired performer. Legion of Subjaries is my Grateful Dead cover band. Legion of Subjaries <laughs> yeah. is my uh, chat room name. It's all uh, little people, right? <laughs> yeah, it's Grateful the little Dead. people playing Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, that was the original name of Jerry's Kids from the MDA cover <laughs> <laughs> Legion of Subjaries. <laughs> and it was some... <laughs> That was the telephone. Sub, sub in height, age, and genetics. We're trying to create a legion of sub-Jerry's. Uh, yeah. The legion of sub-Deans. The people well, that can't walk welcome, with the Welcome to the legion of sub-Jerry's. <laughs> but, uh, but, but your comedy to me was always, I always gravitated toward it for, for several reasons. Number one, because you they, the bits were longer story bits and you actually were talking about real things that you were dealing with yes. and finding comedy in that. And also, in, in my mind, you were the master of, of what I describe as, like, there's an eloquent filth to some of the things that, that, that you write. And, and it made me... Yes. <laughs> well, because I always, I always start writing from the... I, I always go right to filth and I always beat myself up about it. Like, no, 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 not again. But but you do it in such a way that makes me feel like oh no there is a way to do it where it's okay and oh, it's yeah. still funny and still you know well that's also you know that came from a lot of you know all of that stuff none of that stuff in anybody's style is ever intentional uh, it's always uh, what uh, you how you develop and and then people ascribe what they think it is after the fact I never set out to do anything different I was just like this is the way that I'm funny yeah. Um, I certainly ripped off, you know, like El- El- Albert Brooks's stand-up. If you listen to the stand-up sections of Comedy Minus One, mm-hmm. were a huge impact on me because I realized I didn't have to write a bit about, you know, pens. He just talked about going on stage at a Richie Havens concert, or doing, and it was just a way of talking about his life. That it was like, oh, what an easy way to come up with material. If I just wake up and do shit, I'll have material. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, there's a guy named Bo- uh, from Boston named Kenny Rogerson, who I took a lot from, not in material, but in just of his, he loved dark shit the way I love dark shit. And, and he sort of showed me a way to talk about dark stuff in a way that was funny and not just uh, like dead baby jokes. Right. You know, um, although you do have one of my favorite dead baby jokes of all time. <laughs> I do. I didn't even. know You I said had it on one. stage at Largo once, and I felt like it was a thing that you may have never said again. I, I I can assure you, it probably is. This was probably ten or eleven years ago. You said uh, you were talking about Whoopi Goldberg, and you go, "Whoopi Goldberg's about as funny as coming home from a dead baby's funeral and seeing its toy box in the living room." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, that actually. That's my dad's joke. Oh, jeez. My dad frequently says. My father frequently says, about as funny as a dead baby's toy box. No. That's funny. That's, that's uh, really funny. That's my father's. And that always, that was, one of, that was one of those ones that just latched onto my brain, and I'm like, I will never forget that as long oh, as I live. I like that, because it's not necessarily about the dead baby. It's about the results of it and just being at home after, in the aftermath. Yeah. Yes. Well, a great way to sum up that with, with eloquent filth. I mean, that, that leads you to eloquent filth. And, you know, I'll give you an example of, like, the way that I could never do something painful and then I would see Kenny talk about his stuff was all sort of like a darker Stephen Wright. It was and and like fictitious whimsy. Like he would do it. Here's a Kenny Rogerson joke. Great comedian, still working, uh, lives in Boston, I believe. 
Uh, sometimes I like to go to the laundromats with the big glass doors on the machines, and I'll just throw in like a doll's head, couple arms, and walk around going, "Has anybody seen Katie?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I was just like that kind of like, "Oh, I like that laugh because it's uncomfortable." But I would do a thing where I would talk about my girlfriend broke up with me, but she's moved on, and I'm happy, and she's happy, and then I would just stop and be really quiet for like. 20 seconds <laughs> uh, because that's great because now you have the audience's attention because they don't know if you've really snapped or if you're pretending to snap and they don't know what's coming next surprise is the strongest tool in the comedian's toolbox and then I would go no she's fucking right now I can feel it oh I can feel it and then I would just like bend over the waist and start rubbing my it's like it's fucking me now how do you get away because and then oh let me get and then I would like fall down and then and then I go no who am I kidding I'm sure they're done Lying there, <laughs> lying there in the warm, loving afterglow as he wipes the cum off his dick with an old photo of me. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that you would like assemble. Like, uh, like, like, how would Philip Roth write this? And he's just like, what's the, what's the harshest image I can conjure? That is such a difficult line to walk, though, because so many, particularly comedy club audiences, are a little pre-programmed to immediately just go before you even finish what you're saying. So yeah. how do you how do you keep them authority? Yeah, authority. I mean, the great thing about taking long pauses and maintaining it's all crowd control. And if you and I had the good fortune of starting out in Boston, which is really a rough comedy town. I mean, the audiences are if you better be good real quick or they'll kill you. You know, it's a lot like London in a way. It's oh, like, yeah. It's a very contact sport for them. Mm -hmm. And it's not like where I moved later to San Francisco where you go on stage and everybody is in a beret and applauding politely and three people are starting your fan club. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's like, you know, you go on stage and there's a guy doing a cat abortion in the front row and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so you got to really get their attention quick. Uh, so you learn to have very good muscles in terms of crowd control. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you just stand there and stare down the crowd and let them know that you are not afraid of them and that you are in charge, uh, and you don't t you don't need to talk to do that. They'll you can tell mm -hmm. you can tell. Uh, that's how you do it, and that's really fun. I mean, I, I to this day in my act, I always have something that I will do where the audience gets lost like they don't know what i'm doing and they don't know what's coming next and they get off center uh and that's great because it really just affirms no i'm in charge you're I, here and i I'm think you're sort of the father I, I think this sort of godfather of i see a lot of you in that sort of what ended up being called the alternative comedy movement of, that started around 91 i see yes. a lot of your voice trickle down to some very famous comedians within that world. You mean people who make more money than you? <laughs> But I see, and I even see, you know, I mean, I, I will readily admit that you're someone that I l sort of get in my head sometimes when I'm writing, like, that's, oh, this isn't... But that's how you do it. That's, I know, you know that's, I guess, that's but... How, no, that's, that's, that's exactly how it works. But it's, it's, more of a, it's more of a writer's approach to comedy rather than a clown's approach to comedy where you can create comedy by weaving this really incredible imagery together yes. without having to have like a like ah here's a bunch of things and here's the joke like yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's all about taking people on this really really wonderful journey that through through you know through a story with with just the words and the metaphors and the and that yeah. and that's that's something that I that I love. Oh that's great. No and and I also think I mean I was certainly uh uh doing it 
I, I was one of the when the alternative movement started here in L.A. in the 90s, I was one of the few people that would do all of those shows and then also go over to the improv mm-hmm. and do it in a straight club or go on the road because I was, a, of, of all the people that started in our little group of like me and Janine Garofalo and Kathy Griffin and Bob Odenkirk and David Cross and um, that little group, uh, I was the only one that really worked regularly in comedy clubs. Because mm-hmm. you then started later, there. And then Andy Kindler and, and all those people. I'm leaving out names, but I'm just, uh, literally... It was uh, my. It was a, your social group. It but was the people I went to movies. Those Janines, like like the, the Janine Cross group, you had already been a touring comic before that scene, and yes. I, I think that scene of Janine and David and all those guys and Kathy and Greg Barron, like that sort of evolved out of well, we can't perform in clubs or we don't want to perform in clubs, well, so we're just gonna perform. Having been there, <laughs> the day <laughs> of the conversation, I'll tell you exactly what it was. Holy shit! Um, it was Janine. Uh, having the very astute observation that in L.A. there was no place to experiment. Because um, you go to the improv and you want to write and do some new stuff, and then you find out, oh, great, Jim McCauley from The Tonight Show was there and he saw me tank because mm-hmm. I was trying something new. <clears throat> um, and so we wanted a place to bomb if we had to bomb. Um, and that's all it was. And the other thing, it was just quite simply... By that point in time, the comedy boom of the 80s and early 90s had really, as I've said before, reached its point of putrescence. (laughs) Um, And comedy fans weren't in comedy clubs because they were the least funny (laughs) entertainment option. Right. It was, you know, it was just like there are three comedy clubs in every town. and, And someone said this. I think this was Jerry Seinfeld's. Story: The arc of the comedy boom in the in the 80s was in the early 80s. You'd bump into somebody and they'd go, "What do you do?" And they'd go, "Well, I'm a comedian." They go, "Oh, that's really interesting. What's that like?" And in the in the mid to late 80s, it'd be like, "What do you do?" And you go, "I'm a comedian." And they go, "Oh yeah, my brother-in-law's a comedian." Uh. <laughs> and then in the early 90s, it'd be like, "What do you do?" I'm a comedian. Yeah, me too. I mean, it was just it was so <laughs> everywhere. Um, we wanted to uh, just find a place where we could go and and bomb and experiment so we went to this place called big and tall books on beverly boulevard and it was like a hipster bookstore with a performance area upstairs and we said uh, okay and we just rules to keep it interesting uh you can't do your material you have to do new stuff you have to do new stuff that you've done and then um that was the rule so you'd write it down and then bring your notebook on stage with you because you didn't know it mm-hmm and that was the birth of having your notebook on stage with you, <laughs> which later somehow got misconstrued as don't practice. <laughs> <laughs> don't be prepared. No, you're wrong. <laughs> it's a job. It's a show. We had our notebook with because we, I didn't have time to memorize it. I'd written it three hours before. That's how I uh, interpreted it when I first started doing comedy. Because I, I used know, to come to the... Un- everybody I, did. I used to come to the Uncabaret <laughs> shows at Luna Park when I was in college. And that's yeah. where I first met you yeah. in like 91. And... Um, and I would, and so what I took from that is, oh no, when you go on stage, if you want to be cool, you have to bring your notebook and you have to not be familiar with the bits. And I bombed so many times everybody, just yeah. not knowing where the, you know. Oh, I know everybody thought that. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I, I am guilty of that. I didn't want to be the old guy going, you know, kids, <laughs> it is. A, well, that was the best advice I ever got in stand up was because I was a, when I, at that time, I was working in all of these clubs with Andy Kindler and Kathy Griffin and Janine and all these, you know, as I've said, that period of my time, it was just a blur of people in suede jackets writing on their hand. Um, 
And then I would go out on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday and do the Addison Improv with yep. Kevin Rooney or with Bill Maher or Larry Miller. And so I had my feet in two generations of comedians. Uh, I, I'm very good friends with all of that. Bill Maher, Kevin Rooney, Larry Miller, all those guys, because I worked with them all when I was a kid. And I was with my peers, Janine and everybody else. Um, but I would go out and do all the stuff that I was doing in the alternative rooms. And it just, I was very angry that the audience wouldn't, weren't ready for it because I would just go on like I was at Luna Park mm-hmm. and people were like, what the fuck is this? You're in Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then Kevin Rooney uh, said one night, you know, it's a show. <laughs> you're doing what you're doing, but it's still a show. There's a mic and a light and you're on a higher plane than everyone else. You're up on a box. It's a show. And they want to like you. But precursor to that is they want to at least think that you like them right and the minute those two and he said them just like that in one day and one minute and i was a better comedian the next show because what i just by my attitude towards what i was doing changed i was able to do all the same stuff but i just had i was just a more open performer about it it was it wasn't like here's something else you're not going to get oh that was let me show you something that's such baby that, that, and that's almost i i see that like with baby comics Sometimes where they feel like uh, and it's just fear. They, it's just I, fear I, of I guess it is. I guess it is. They control the situation more by, at least in their own minds. Like I'm going to write so far over the audience's head, they're not even going to fucking know. And not because I'm smarter than they are. And the second you do that, it's like, well, then neither one of you are really enjoying that experience. I yeah. don't think. Well, it's 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 you're not gonna. I'm not going to be vulnerable and tr- try my best, and then bomb. I'll tell you I'm going to bomb, mm-hmm. and I'll be in charge of the situation. When you started doing that, like when you started to treat it more as a show, did you feel like you had to change anything verbally, or would you sort of just... No, just not at all. Attitude? It was just attitude. It's just attitude. And I get that, and you realize that a lot, like when you talk about, you know, when you do politics, like if I, when I go on like real time with Bill Maher or something like that, you know, I, I'm, I'm a bomb throwing progressive like anybody else uh probably listening to this but i have great friends that are on the other side of the political spectrum and and i've talked to people that i really don't like but if if you just like okay i i understand your perspective and i understand that you think that you the way you do here let me ask you a question from my point of view and you'll find when you do that people are just much more open Instead of just going like all internet conversations, like I like this, you're a communist, you're a fascist, end of conversation. Right. You know, if you're just like, I understand you're an American, I'm an American, we both love our country, we have very different views about it. Explain to me why this happens. And I go crazy. Well, that is the first, that, I believe that is the first rule of the uh, seven habits of highly effective people. <laughs> Seek first to understand. <laughs> Seek first. So, so few people actually want to shove their point of view in your fucking face rather than actually trying to understand the situation. That's very interesting you say that. I had a friend who was a comic back from those days who had that book and said, <laughs> it's a really great book. You should really read it. And I bought it and I never opened it and ended up giving it away at a show at Luna Park. I had a show at Luna Park where I gave away all my self-help books. Uh, all of them unopened. And that one specifically, I remember being not r- remotely creased. And the like guy not even who, a flip through. And the guy who read it, 
was Judd Apatow. <laughs> <laughs> the guy who said, you should read this book. I'm like, oh, whatever. Uh, whatever. Hey, Judd. What, Good luck. Were you on that Young Comedian special in 93, Judd? Good luck, pal. <laughs> I remember that young that young comedian special that had Ray Romano, Janine. Tempe, Arizona. They put her in a flower print dress. Yes. Uh, clearly, someone was trying to girl her up in the traditional sense. Uh, Judd Apatow, Bill Bellamy, and I think Dana Carvey hosted, yep. maybe. I think that was in Tempe, Arizona. Yeah, and a young, spry Andy Kindler who was jumping around on stage <laughs> like a grasshopper. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> that was an interesting special, if anyone can dig it up. Because you're watching, you're watching a lot of people really on the precipice of figuring out who they are. And then seeing where they ended up going and seeing that that was kind of their first television, big television thing. Yeah. I mean, Romano was like 34 when he did that. Yeah. And it I have was, a lot of I have a lot of television. I wish wasn't television. I remember watching <laughs> you in '94. I went to see Buster's Happy Hour, <laughs> the Buster Poindexter comedy show yeah. that VH1 was I know, doing. I know what you're talking about. Yes, <laughs> this was one of my favorite moments of all time. Is that Dana? They the Buster introduces the next comic who's supposed to be Dana, but there's a fuck up in the prompter or the or the cue card or whatever. So he introduces Carlos Mencia, and he goes, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Carlos Mencia! And then Dana walks out without missing a beat going, Hey, everybody, it's crazy to be Latino! (laughs) And it's like everyone fucking lost their minds. Of course, they didn't use it, but that was an amazing, (laughs) such an amazing moment. My my favorite... Story from uh, like that period when I was doing all those shows when literally every channel had 18 stand up shows. I was doing the A list, which by the second Sandra season, Bernhard's A list, uh, this was the first season, the Richard, Richard Lewis, Lewis. Okay. but it was the A list, and then Sandra Bernhard took it over and it became a list. <laughs> 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 but uh, but I was standing backstage with Richard Lewis, who I lived one house away from at the time in Los Angeles. I've never talked to him, but I see him every day. And we're standing backstage, and, I, and I, I'm about to say, you know, I'm your neighbor. I, I live right next to you on blank, blank drive. And I go, you know, and he just goes, I can't talk right now. I'm getting ready to go on. Please. I can't talk right now. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> go fuck myself. Wow. <laughs> he really right, is man. that neurotic. He really is. I, and I never said it. I was like, all right. Did you fuck you? <laughs> he so tried you to never... say it afterwards. He's like, "Don't talk to me right now. I'm coming off of the stage." <laughs> really? Don't talk to me. I'm not doing anything at the moment. <laughs> really exploded. Um, and then I, I think, did I? I think you've been pretty public about this, at least in your in your stand up and stuff that I've seen at Largo. But shortly after that period, you you had a little, you had kind of a meltdown. <laughs> yeah. So what ha- what happened exactly? I had a little comic book store called Meltdown. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I would uh, I started doing you know I started doing stand up really really young and I just did it all through college and was did it full you know I just did it all the time I mean it was my whole life and I really drove myself really hard and I was um, I was just on stage at in San Francisco uh, and by that time I was headlining. I was in my mid twenties, and I, was, I remember I was doing three one-hour shows that night, um, and I was about twenty minutes into my first show. And you know, when you're on stage, you can have the flu, and you walk on stage, and you're fine. Yeah, adrenaline. Yeah, and then it's over. But I've been, ju- I've just, I'd done it so much. I just done it so much, and it was that that went away. The adrenaline went away, and I. Literally just had what I know now. I, d- I didn't know it at the time. I had a panic attack in the middle of a set. 
and I was just on stage, and I just thought, I can't be here. Like, my heart was racing. I was outside of myself, looking at myself. I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack. Oh, yeah, 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 many. Yeah, you know what they're like. And, and to have it on stage and knowing, like, not only do I have to do another 40 minutes, I have to do it two more times. Um, and I just, like, I just said, uh, I forget what I said exactly, but I... I said, I'll be right back. And I just walked off stage. <laughs> and uh, What club? Uh, Cobb's Comedy Club Cobbs. in San Francisco. Uh, and I walked off stage, and the owner of the club, the, uh, a man who, who has the name Tom Sawyer, um, he was whittling when I walked out. <laughs> uh, I walked off stage. Trick somebody to paint a fence for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you keep paying me in glass doorknobs. <laughs> uh, I walked out of the showroom, and he was sitting in the, in the front area, and he just went, he looked up at me and looked down at his watch and went, who's on stage right now? And I went, no one. And I just walked into the bathroom and just kind of stood in the stall for a minute like, ah. and then it was like, and then, I, and then the fact that I did walk off made it like, okay, you can leave if you have to. And I sort of collected myself, walked back on stage, finished the show, finished both shows. And, but then I just had, you know, I, I had stage fright for like two years. Really? Uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Just for having never had it. Paralyzing stage fright that, uh, they would have another panic attack on stage, and just sort of melted down. And when, you know, when you're twenty, when you're twenty six, twenty seven, if you don't flip out, you've done something wrong. You think you know, so? I think I, it, everybody around that time, you sort of crash and burn to one degree or another. Um, and I, you know, I was a very, I was, I was raised largely unsupervised. <laughs> I was the fifth child of six kids. With parents that had other things to do than watch kids <laughs> mm-hmm. drink. Um, and so I was, you know, I didn't really, I kind of, I kind of parented myself and I wasn't a very good, uh, I didn't have good boundaries for me. I wasn't a great parent to me. For to yourself. I wasn't a good parent to me. Um, and then you learn, you know, and then, I, and then I, you figured it out and, you know, you just go forward. The, pa- the panic attacks. Fortunately, I, I pimped it out into like a one-man show, and a, so it paid for itself. <laughs> well, no, that's good. I mean, because I mean, to be able to do something constructive with something horrible like that is sort yeah. of the gift of what it means to be an artist, I think. Yes, and it's a terrible thing when you don't know what's going on, and you think you're going crazy. I mean, because like, I, no, I didn't know what panic attack was. I didn't know what panic disorder was. I didn't know what, you know, I couldn't, and then it was like, another uh, period of time there's like i went like 11 days without ever sleeping more than two two and a half hours a night i had something very yeah. similar when i was 20 and i didn't know what it was yeah. at the time and you and you it feels like it's a physical you, thing you're dying you think you're dying yeah. Yeah. and then it becomes the panic attack becomes like a shock collar like a dog like they start living in fear of the shock yes without ever actually i mean like if you use a shock collar on a dog you only really have to do it once or twice yeah and then after that there's a little beeping sound that precedes the shock, and when a dog, when the dog, then you, it's just the beep, and then they fear, and that's the same thing with it's panic vicious, attacks. It's a vicious circle because the anxiety of the panic attack produces the panic attack, and 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 insomnia is the worst thing in the world. And uh, but then you, but then if you you learn, no, that's somnambulistic hypervigilance. Your body feels under siege and refuses to let itself relax because it feels threatened. When someone told you that that was a thing, that must have changed it for it you almost like instantly. It's like your jaw drops like, like a droopy cartoon. It yep. 
Uh, yeah, and then you just get uh, you know get some pills and get your life together. <laughs> and pills, so pills and surgery. Good advice, kids. <laughs> get some pills and get your yeah, life just together. some trepanning will take care of that. Well, it's true. You know, I went to all of these homeopathic people, and they were all a waste of time and money. It was just an utter avalanche of new age bullshit that did nothing. And I really want to believe a lot of that stuff. But if you go to a foot reflexologist and say my car doesn't work, they'll find out a way to solve your. Sure through foot reflexology and uh i got some pills and they were awesome I took them for a long time well <laughs> and, uh, and my new agey friends would go you know you're still feeling your anxiety you're just masking it with medication i was like yes that's what it says on the label of the fucking pill <laughs> you know in the winter time i still feel the cold i mask it with a coat <laughs> what is your addiction to suffering <laughs> You know, move on. I always found that with panic attacks, that when when I realized that it was a physiological reaction, oh, it's amazing, and not a, yeah. and then and I realized like, oh, if I can keep my heart rate down, it's not going to pump adrenaline through my body at a hundred miles an hour, and you can't you can't relax and have a panic attack at the exact same time. It's impossible. Yeah. So if you can keep your heart rate down, then it that really. That doesn't cure everything forever, but it is very, you know, you get to that point where you're like, oh, is this the crossroads? Am I about to freak out? Yeah. And if you can, if you can ebb that before you go into that mode. And then- comedians and musicians who've never had that aren't that great. You know, <laughs> I, I believe that people that are driven to those extremes in their behavior, that also allows them to go to more creative places. I mean, if, if you don't, you, you know, show me a guy that doesn't have problems and I'll show you a really boring performer mm-hmm. and a really uninteresting writer uh, because you have to write from those things. And um, I, it, so it's, and it's more true even musically, I mean, than, than anything else. Um, and it, it, once you do realize that and you're able to step back and, and still use it but live your life happily, that's, that's, the, that's the goal. Um, and it is, it, it's, it's tricky because for a while you're living like with a gun to your own head because you don't know if you're going to be. Yeah. It's, a, it's a terrible feeling to, uh, to think like, oh, I just wish I was like everybody else. <laughs> people just go to the movies and have fun. <laughs> yeah. You know. But then the truth is that a lot of those people are probably... Yeah, <laughs> screaming inside. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. And you're just like walking around your apartment like, I can't jerk off again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, My you can. My cock looks like the handlebar grip of a child's bike. <laughs> I'm going to come streamers. <laughs> My, mine looks like a beginner ceramic ashtray. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I, uh, I just want to shift gears when a little. Your cock looks like, I'm not a stress ball. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> I want to shift gears a little bit because I I, I, I want to get to the I want to get to your obsession with Ed Wood and Planet of the Apes and Vampirella and you know yeah. like your relationship Fun stuff that's all great that's all great stuff well you and Jonah bonded pretty you're gonna, hard you're gonna edit all of that other stuff out, right? <laughs> yeah 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 it's gone uh, <laughs> you, you, you I'm and, assuming these shows are heavily posted yeah 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 <laughs> we do a ton of uh, we also auto tune each and every one of our voices and, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. we're gonna we're gonna pro tools the shit yeah, out of this yeah, yeah, you know exactly. we gotta we got we also gotta drop in the you're listening to a nerdist podcast but you guys bonded over Ed Wood because that's Jonah's favorite movie and I was astounded when you said that I was so uh, yeah I was like meeting a member of a secret club it does feel like that sometimes yeah. and it's it's not it's everyone likes that movie but no one seems to love it 
as much as anyone else I ever yeah. met. Oh like, God, I love that movie so it's, much. It's it's my favorite movie of all time. And I, I forgot you. I don't know how it came up. We we're just backstage at Meltdown, and you just yeah. You we were s- talking about phones. You were showing me your phone for some reason. Yeah. And you showed me that you had the whole movie on your phone. Yeah. I always I like I keep it with me. Yeah. And I, was, uh, and I, was, yeah. And I told him the, the weird story. You know, I have I have two really weird stories about that movie, but but the one of them was that I. Joel Hodgson, I knew about Plan 9 from Outer Space um, through, like, Tom Kenny and those guys uh, when I first started out. Um, I had never seen Glenn or Glenda. I'd heard about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tom Kenny and his roommate at the time, later my roommate in Boston, a guy named Dan Spencer, uh, showed me Glenn or Glenda. And on an old, you know, and my head exploded. I just thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And then I saw Plan 9 and I was like, I love this movie. There's just something about it. There's something. It's like when you listen to like an early punk record. Like, I don't want to say the Sex Pistols record because it was too well produced. Yeah, that's a good But one. if you listen to like Los Angeles by X, you know, you can. Or any of those germs, early germs. Yeah, early germs, early buzzcocks. You can just yeah. hear all the flaws. And the and the missed chords and the, yeah. and the bad playing and the stick accidentally hitting the rim instead yeah. of the drum. Yeah. yeah, but but the intention is there. The intention is so clear that the passion for the music is so there. And Plan Nine is kind of the same way to me. He can't do a fucking thing right, but the intention is there. There's just nothing but affection for what he's trying to do. And I really do. It, it's it's that that marriage of sort of like benevolent enthusiasm and 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 profound incompetence but what makes uh, that come just, together in a beautiful way but, <laughs> but what makes that just like not bad like william hung like well that guy's very passionate about his music but he can't really you know like yeah. what, what is the difference between i don't know i don't know it just sometimes it sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't yeah <laughs> you and know the fact that he like Glenn finishes Glenda it is, yeah Glenn, yeah glenn or glenda is great plan nine from outer space is great orgy of the dead not that great not that great the edward movie that i'm in i woke up early the day i died made in 1998 off the last surviving edward script holy shit not that great <laughs> <laughs> not that great. but uh you know sometimes it just sometimes it just works you know um it, it's an inex- that's the beautiful thing it's inexplicable you never know you know uh but so, so he was showing me that, and, and my two stories about that is, I was so into it when that movie came out. I went berserk. I was like, I have to be in this movie, and I I did audition for the movie, and I still have my script that I got from ICM with my part highlighted, mm-hmm. which was uh, Max Casella played it in the movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that was weird, and then I ended up living the movie. <laughs> <laughs> in a weird way, because uh, if you see the movie, there's a character, the character of Vampira, who was uh, the first person to like, ironically, host horror movies on television. She was Elvira in the mid '50s. I'm sorry, I said Vampirella. I oh, that's a okay. okay. that, that doesn't matter. She's dead. It's okay. okay. Sure. Um, <laughs> nothing matters. Nothing matters. Well, of course anymore. she's dead. She's Vampira. She's been <laughs> dead she's for thousands of years. Yeah. She's she's now non undead. Oh, okay. Right. Um, she uh, she um. Uh, I ended up interviewing her for a documentary I wanted to do about horror movie hosts, which is still the only job I think I'm really qualified to do. Um, and we became really good friends. Uh, and she didn't have a telephone at the time. And I wrote her a letter. Uh, and this is 1995, right after the movie came out. I did this documentary for the Sci Fi Channel, um, met her, interviewed her, became her friend. And then I would just like, 
she just seemed lonely. I'd write her, like, you know, she'd write me and I'd write her back. We, became, we lived in the same city, but we became pen pals because she didn't want a phone. She was very reclusive. And then I would take her out to lunch once a, once a month, once every two, three weeks. And we just became friends. And then over the years, we just never stopped becoming, being friends. You know, we just constantly stayed friends. How old is she at this time? She's in her uh, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, then her sort of support group falls away. Uh, and I end up basically uh, doing for her what Ed Wood did for Bela Lugosi in the movie that inspired me to contact her in the first place. <laughs> wow. Uh, and there's a, there's a, yeah, it was very bizarre. Um, you for, you know, you, of course, her real name was Myla Nermi. And you forget she's, you know, then she just becomes your friend and you forget that she's Vampira. And for a while, like, whenever I would see Plan 9, I'm like, oh, I got to call her, I think. <laughs> you know, I think I, I, I think I got to pay her gas bill or something oh, like that. Oh, wow, you, well, know, you were at support? You were helping? Oh, no, no we, we, we helped her out. Um, and, and then the, but the weirdest story was I had just started on The Simpsons, and I'd been there for, I guess, two years, and we uh, had our first uh, daughter. And so I just was crushed with, time. you know, I've got a baby and a day job, and um, Myla uh, calls me or writes me and says, I have to move. They're tearing down the building that I'm in. And it's like, okay, the one thing I don't have time to do right now is find first floor housing within three blocks of a supermarket for a woman in her early 80s on a fixed income with a dog and a cat that can't cross a four-way street <laughs> to get to necessities. Mm -hmm. um, so... I went into a store in North Hollywood called Halloween Town. Yeah, which is a goth supply store. Is it, that that is that Wayne's store? Yeah, 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 Wayne's store. It was, uh, you know, if you want to go camping, you go to Big Five Sports. If you want to be goth, you go to Halloween Town. <laughs> yep, <laughs> they're your supply outlets. And I walked in, and there was a vampire shirt on the wall, and I said, "Do you know anybody that I could pay?" to help me find an apartment for the woman on that shirt, the real woman. And they just went, yes. <laughs> As if my coming was predicted in their ancient texts. It says, and then it's all like in serigraph. There yeah, you yeah. are. One if day you... a man with tattooless arms will walk into the store. That's, that's, Wayne, is... that's, that's Wayne and Jackie's store. Yeah, Wayne, 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 Wayne mm. did the effects for House of a Thousand Corpses. Right. Yeah, yeah, if, you, if you play the uh, Danzig 2 record backwards, it tells <laughs> of Dana Gould's coming. Dana will come to rescue. And so I met this lovely goth couple. Uh, Matt and Gab. Uh, he looked like Alice Cooper. She looked like Alice, Alice Cooper. Cooper <laughs> they're both no, they're both lovely people. And they were just you know he was in a band trying to get going called Wednesday Thirteen, and she was a photographer and and they knew who Milo was and and loved her and together the three of us <laughs> and we looked quite odd. It's like, look at those the, that goth couple and their parole officer. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who the guy in the Izod shirt is. Um, we we became really uh, wonderful friends, and we together found uh, her a lovely place to live. And over the course of packing up her stuff, found like a bunch of money that she had. Like, oh, I thought I lost that. This is great. I was like, it was literally, it was literally like. The greatest day, and we moved her in, and she was so happy. She was like, oh, my God, this is a... She had a bungalow. She was... We got her one of the last bungalow courts in Hollywood. Like she literally had her own bungalow. It was just... You couldn't have designed it better. 
and we're, I'm sitting in her house on that day, and uh, I'm thinking, yeah, this is, this is good. You know, she found a bunch of money that she thought she'd lost, and she's in her bungalow court, and everybody's happy. And, and then I was literally, just as I had that feeling of like, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. I just hear behind me, ow, 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 ow. And I look around, and Myla's dog has bitten Gabrielle right in the tit. Oh. And it was just one of those like, and so we spent that day, uh, ended that day in the uh, emergency oh, room. Jesus. Not in the in the in the uh, sternum would be a better place. Oh, okay, didn't really, wasn't going for milk. Um, <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. But that was yeah, it, it was, uh, and and I'm still friends with them. Uh, that guy Matt is now Rob Zombie's bassist. Known to the world as Piggy Demon. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's who it is. What a weird small world. Yeah, do you know him? Do you know him? I don't know him do very well. Do you know well. Piggy? There's a question I... I don't know... <laughs> There's I don't... a question I haven't asked since I was in the Lord of the Flies <laughs> cast. <laughs> Where is that conch? Uh, yeah. Oh, hey, is that a boulder? Crush. Yeah. Uh, hey, look at that raw. I feel like I probably do. Rob used to have these barbecues and have all, like, the yeah. band, band members come and, like, John Five and, like, yes. you know, all yeah, these yeah, people yeah. and Blasco and, you know, all these people that would play with him and uh those, those are those are really fun they're not they're not together anymore they're both uh, moved on to different uh, uh right partners in life uh i know them both i'm good friends with them both they're the nicest people on earth both of them and uh there was a time i i don't think he'll mind me saying this and mile is gone um where the they had a uh, a problem in the building uh that she was living in and she had uh, uh, uh they had a cockroach infestation and, you know, it happens in low-income areas. So she had to go live in a hotel for a couple of days, and Matt and I had to go clean out this room in her apartment, which was had a problem. And so it was gnarly. Um, so we ended up going to Home Depot and basically buying, like, hazmat suits because <laughs> it was just cockroaches and cat pee and, and, and just stuff. that it, it looked like a scene from the movie Seven. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and we were just looking at each other and these like booties and gloves and a mask and just like my just my eyes and, and just sweat and his eyes and mascara and sweat <laughs> and, and, and just looking at each other and, and just in this fetid room just laughing at the insipidness of the whole thing. Uh, but we'll always have that bond. I see him now, I email him now, and it's always like we were in Nam together. <laughs> but he is, he's one of those guys like, like, I'm going to space and I can't take my kidneys. Hang on to them. He'll hang on to them. <laughs> They're both really nice. And people. when did she pass away? She passed away in uh, January of 2008. Oh, wow. Yeah, or 2009, I forget. Um, but she was, you know, she was one of those people that just, you know, there's famous people and who make a lot of money uh, and they're well off. And then there's famous people that are famous, but then they don't, you don't realize that they're not making any money. Right. You know, and, yeah. and she just sort of survived. She's like, you know, and, and especially in, in Hollywood, people fall through the cracks all the time. And uh, I got to know her and it was, she was, she was lucky. We were both lucky because we both, benefited from the friendship but you know the fact that we knew each other and, be, and were friends uh that was a lucky thing for her because she didn't have anybody to help her move and there aren't institutions set up to help mm -hmm. a lot of seniors so it was weird the other weird thing about it was she was also friends because she was a very iconic 
character in the 50s. And 50s L.A., you know, when Vampire first came on in 1954, there was nothing like it on television. And if you look at the average show that was on television in 1954, it's, it's early Ozzy and Harriet. I mean, it was the 50s, but it was really still the 40s. It was, you know, people think of the 50s, they're thinking of the very late 50s and the very early 60s. Elvis uh, really reaching his peak in like 57. And it was a very primitive time. And she's in this low-cut dress with this 17-inch waist and making really off-color jokes. There was really nothing like her on television. It was a local show. It was only in Los Angeles. And within two months, she was in Time and Newsweek. Wow. wow. Uh, and Life. Uh, it was a big splash. And so she became friends with a lot of flamboyant homosexuals that were a part of that sort of underground bohemian culture in Los Angeles at that time. And when she passed... I was through the L.A. coroner's office listed as the contact. And so for about a month, I was getting these calls with these tragic septuagenarian gay men from the 50s. But it was like, I would just get this message like, boop, Dana. <laughs> <laughs> it's Orlando Divine calling. And they, all had, like, they all had these insane names. I'm, I swear to Christ, I wish I say them. I got your name from Tulip de Valenture. <laughs> and I am just beside myself. It, you know, it's Cotton Smiles Terwilliger gave me your number, and I need, I need to talk to you. I got your neighbor from, from Butterscotch La Jolla, and I need to talk about my life. And it was really cool. Where is she buried now? Uh, she is, uh, we, uh, she was laid to rest in the um, Hollywood Forever Cemetery. She's in Hollywood Forever. Uh, oh, that's only, nice. Not only is she in Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and I this is not on. This is not intentional. Uh, but one of the, you know, she wanted to be uh, cremated and all that, uh, you know, stuff you don't need to know. Um, the plot that she has through no, not intentionally, she's right in front of Darren McGavin. Oh wow! Oh wow! <laughs> He's always on her tail. <laughs> That's really they did. They did such a nice. They did such an amazing job revitalizing Hollywood forever. Yeah, it's really just kind of a cool place to just go. Yeah. I became I became really good friends with them. <laughs> <laughs> They're really great. Like the whole good. and the movies that they do during the summer. And the, yeah, it, I mean San it's Espia. it's such a great, it's yeah. such a great place. It's, I, it's they, a great place for people who don't know. San Espia is they they and, and it's the reason I love living in Los Angeles. I really do. I couldn't, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up watching like Emergency, mm -hmm. and Adam, SWAT, SWAT, Adam Twelve. And all these Jack Webb shows, and they all—they're all shot on location in L.A. And I just like in the Brady Bunch. I was like, I want to live there. <laughs> I never wanted to live in New York. I always wanted to live in L.A. Where, when I was a kid growing up in Massachusetts, I was like, that's where I want to go. Yeah. And you you uh, you go there to Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and they show movies at night on the side of a mausoleum. It's so great. Yeah. And I'm like. I live in the right place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is like, and like nobody does Halloween the way LA does Halloween. Yep. You know, it's just yeah. like, it's just, nobody comes close. I saw, I saw the exorcist on the side of the mausoleum for Senespia. And it's just like, yeah. you go, it's like the sun just goes down. Everyone brings blankets and lawn chairs. You yeah. pack a picnic. You see a fucking great yeah. movie on the side of the, it's, Hollywood forever is literally the first place I went to when I came to LA. I really? Like, I want to go to Hollywood forever. It's My, great. Uh, I, yeah, I've seen Pee Wee's Big Adventure there. I've seen Dawn of the Dead there. I smoked some pot and watched Holy Mountain, which I do not recommend doing 
<laughs> Do not recommend watching Holy Mountain stoned at a cemetery. It'll mess you up. My uh, my my oldest daughter's first outing, I believe, was uh, we took her to see Night of the Hunter at Hollywood Forever. <laughs> uh, but I said to it was funny. I said to my manager, uh, I said, "You got to go to this thing. It's great." And he's like, "Yeah, I have a really good friend in that mausoleum. I don't think I'm going to go." Oh. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah. There's still people that had lives that I are here. It's, it's weird. It's weird. I didn't go for the first year because I was. I lived right next to it. I lived on El Centro and Willoughby, just right next to the cemetery. And I was just, I was like, nah, I don't know if I could do that. I, had, I never really liked cemeteries, and I, I finally went and I rode my bike in. I didn't have to wait in traffic. It was great, and just it was this one of the best experiences of my life. And then when I was leaving, I was like, wow, I should come to this every time. And then uh, someone honked their horn, and I turned my head, and I crashed my bike <laughs> and like just tumbled over all these raised marble, um, you know, Orthodox, oh, Russian, oh, Jew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of that there. And like, I just like kept on hitting the corners of each one as I <laughs> tumbled down. And like a Into an open John, grave. Dude, yeah, I fell down face first. <laughs> no, it's, I was, it's funny to like do this. My address as a child was Nine Cemetery Street. Oh, wow. It was, it was like just this curvy road. This is absolutely true. There's a little curvy road in my hometown of Hopedale, Massachusetts. And at the end, I lived on the corner. I lived at the in, these are These are everything I'm about to tell you is true. I lived at the intersection of Cemetery Street and Hope Street. <laughs> wow. And if you go to my Facebook page and the photos, there's a photo of the sign. Um, I, at the end of the street, uh, the street ended and then there's the cemetery at the end of the street lived my friend, Russell Putnam, Russell Irving Putnam. His initials were RIP. <laughs> and he grew up across the street from a cemetery and we had this big gang of kids in my neighborhood. We grew up and we would just go in the cemetery and play on our bikes because it was closer than the park. We were just like, when's dinner? Six. Oh, it's five. Let's just go to the cemetery. Yeah. And my mother still has this big article they wrote in the local paper. Hopedale Village Cemetery. Place where children play. <laughs> <laughs> and you couldn't help but read it out loud that way yeah, when you were exactly, yeah. That's what I did. I yeah. learned. I we I would ride my bike to the top of the street and go to St. Mary's in, in Lowell, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. You know. Yeah. Uh, technically in Tewksbury. It's in the town over, but right next to where I lived. And uh, Famous I would alcoholic Jack Kerouac's hometown. Yes. A lot of famous alcoholics. You know, you got everyone thinks they're famous. They're famous because they're all about saying it. Crackheads, alcoholics, we got them. But yeah, no, we had a there was a frog pond up there, and I would go up to the cemetery and catch frogs all the time. Oh yeah, would you go there and catch frogs? Yeah, and then I learned to drive. Taking it back to Tom Sawyer. All the who's on stage? Cemeteries were weird. Bags of frogs. Who's on stage? Tom, he's no shoes. His pants are rolled up, muddy toes. If you put those frogs down, Sam Kennison needs some coke. <laughs> I've smuggled them in the frogs. Tom was one of the first guys. Tom, so Tom Sawyer at Tom's Comedy Club was one of the first guys to book Sam Kennison out of L.A. No shit. Yeah. Tom knows comedy. Tom's great. I, I know him just from, you know, yeah. through uh, doing stuff with SF Sketchfest and, yeah. you know, like performing a bunch. He I never comedy. Never got to perform at the old Cobbs. I've only performed at the airplane hangar that is the, the new Cobbs. Yeah, the new so Cobbs. Yeah. Well, there's the old Cobbs and the old, old Cobbs, which was where it used to be on uh, a legendary club in San Francisco on... Union Street or someplace was way down the wharf. It was right next to like Happy Time Donuts. Mm -hmm. And he, Tom booked Sam Kennison in like 1984 or three. Uh, and Sam just did this bit about the, the guy at the donut store next door. He's like, yeah, you know, he's in there. You go in there next door. He's making donuts. He's making donuts. And I'm just afraid I'm going to be in there one day like, hey, I'll have a crawler. Sure, hang on. Let me get to the crawler. Reaches to get a crawler. Comes out with a magnum. I'm not what daddy wanted! <laughs> 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 
I want to ask you a couple questions. Oh, before Sam, we... I watched you do so much cocaine. <laughs> Somewhere he's snorting a cloud. Yeah, um, yeah, it's true. Where I, do the clouds go? Uh, pure clouds. Same it's another day. Street value of these clouds. clouds. These clouds. Um, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about your involvement with The Simpsons because okay. you you did EP The Simpsons for for a while. Uh, yeah, well, I co EP'd it. Co EP. This is nothing. But um, how would? Because now you know this. Uh, there, it was kind of it was in the news because the ratings of the show have gone down. Which I mean, listen, twenty three seasons of twenty one, twenty two seasons. I don't know. I mean, obviously, the ratings of everything has gone down. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, although I do feel like in the last couple of years, what I've seen on the show, and and tell me, I might be wrong about this, but it feels like so they've hired a bunch of ex Harvard Lampoon writers who are purposely making references to things that no one watching will, will understand unless they went to Harvard. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I I will say this on I have three daughters. They're currently two, seven, and nine. Are you still working on The Simpsons? No. Oh, okay. Uh, I did a voice, and I still go over there. I was over there last week to do a DVD commentary. Yeah. I will on the lives on my children's soul. I have not watched the show since I left. Really? I just I lived it twenty four hours a day. Yeah. For seven years, and I've just there's there will always be something else I want to watch. Right. You know, I just I so I, I I can't comment with any sense of authority about what's going on. I'm not. And I don't. And I don't. I don't not love the show. I I love it. It's a part of my life. But I I just like, and and I don't I don't like. I'm never watching that show again. I'm just like I like. Uh, I, it's like. It's like um, any show that you love, and then you fall off, and like I gotta, I gotta watch that. Oh, I totally understand. Uh, I gotta catch up on eleven seasons. That's why we didn't go on the uh, Simpsons. That's why you didn't want to go on the Simpsons ride at uh, Universal Studios. <laughs> yeah, that, well, there you go. That you know exactly what yeah, I'm yeah. talking Because you went on a Simpsons ride for seven yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. We were at, we were at Universal Studios Halloween hunt last Sunday, and like we're gonna go on the Simpsons ride, and I said something like, uh, "That's okay." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, "Like, yeah, me and Dan are gonna go." Anyone else? And like, he was like, uh, "Um." Mm. No, I'm not no. one of these people who. Get, it'll, it, it'll, hey, here we go. It'll be like going to work, <laughs> but just make it a little, little more queasy. Yeah, but it is hard. I will let me say in their defense, you really don't know how hard it is to come up with stories when you've got 23 seasons behind you of 22 episodes a season, and then you get to the point of like we did that, we did that, we did that, and then you get to the point of like we, we did that with Bart, but we haven't done it with Lisa. And then you know there there are only so many ways to uh, refract. And, and I'm not negative and, about and, and the show I know at all. I know, yeah. I know you're not being negative about that. And the network has also uh, changed the format of the show, or it used to be a three act show, and now it's a four act show, which I don't think is conducive to good storytelling. Um, so they, they 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 believe it or not, for a show that is as well oiled as that, they still sometimes find themselves um, fighting an uphill battle. I left. For a couple of reasons. One, I just felt like I was just, I felt done. I felt like it came time to come up with episodes for the next season. And I had nothing. And I just, I was just like, I think I'm, I think I'm just done. And I really miss performing. And, and I was also a big fan of myself <laughs> and kind of wanted to get back to that. Did you write uh, the joke, uh, Monster Put Card in Wallet? That joke is in my episode. Monster put card in wallet. My, my favorite joke in that episode, that is from uh, a, an episode called um, Was that Papa's the... Got a Brand New Badge. Okay. Homer, basically Homer uh, starts a home security company 
which and all the episodes come from your experiences in life. That's how you do get stories. As long as you're alive, things are going to happen to you, and you'll write about them. My wife and I bought our house, and the first thing you find out when you live buy a house in L.A. is you have to get a private security company. <laughs> like the police aren't enough. There, there are people that are waiting, like, <laughs> like coyotes. And uh, so that was my experience with West Tech. And then they and then just they come over your house, and it's like, uh, well, what do you want? What kind of program do you want to get? I was like, well, I thought the one that you sold me over the phone was good. Let me just show you. Can I ask you a question? Do you like rape? No. <laughs> Let me show you this. Oh, Jesus. Do you have a monkey sensor? <laughs> I don't think I need one. What are you going to do when the apes take over? That's a pretty good point. <laughs> Your wife comes home, don't touch the bananas. <laughs> yeah. There's little bowls of raisins all over the house. Don't touch them. Uh uh, so we came up with that, and, and there was a commercial for uh, Homer's uh, Spring Shield, which was Homer's company, where a monster breaks in on a woman, and then Spring Shield comes in, and he goes, uh, and, and the monster goes, friend? <laughs> and Homer goes, you always have a friend with Spring Shield. And he gives him his card, and the monster goes, monster put in wallet. <laughs> and I didn't write the joke. I didn't know who I saw. that It was like at the coloring test. I was like, who wrote that? joke where'd that joke come from and, I, and nobody could remember and i had to track it down because it was so funny and it was tom gamble of uh, gamble and pross and i just love that joke it's so stupid what was that you're doing a commercial and there's a monster in the commercial but the monster is real and and doesn't <laughs> understand that the commercial is a commercial the monster is in a reality that you are not was, and he's still gonna call him later very meta very, very how long did meta. it take to write a simpsons episode uh, about, you know, soup to nuts, it takes about, you know, five to six weeks. You get, you know, you break the story for a week, then you write an outline for a week, then you come back, do notes on the outline, then you get two weeks to write the script, you come back, and then they spend like three to four weeks rewriting the script. And what was, was there a storyline? It's not that, a great place to work if you think your words are precious. Because it'll get... Because it's hamburger. What's the... Uh, they just literally get your script, you read it, and then, okay, page one, interior, what do you want? I mean, it's just like... Don't it's it's a great because nine times ninety nine times out of a hundred your words aren't that precious right yeah. so uh, it's a great was there a storyline that you could never get pushed through that you really thought like yes I wanted to do a story where Lisa became goth and I just thought it would be a natural story and I just could not sell it I couldn't get it through wow I tried for seven years but that's like you know that's the next logical step after her becoming vegetarian it is it's perfect and part of it was right at the beginning right when i started was right when columbine happened and goth had a oh. a, a, a bad it wasn't they weren't goth but they got ascribed that um, and that kind of queered it for a couple of years and then mm. i just couldn't sell it and then Lisa getting into porn which is another that didn't happen they didn't do that again the natural step i mean in today's Porn. Such father issues. In today's, in today's porn-soaked world. <laughs> <laughs> the internet makes it so easy. Yeah. The only way to describe it. I was, I know gonna, I was at a, the HBO Emmy party, and I saw Sasha Gray at the Emmy mm -hmm. party. And I looked at her, and then I like looked away and like, you don't want to see her. You don't want her to see you and think that you recognize her. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. And then I thought, the Pope knows who she is. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 you, it's, you can't avoid it now. You can't turn on your computer without it. 
Well, that's the thing. A young girl get choked. Yeah, yeah it's really, it is. You are at the point of like, is this? Are we done now? She's into that weird fetish porn. I, I don't think. I, I don't think this noise should ever get made during sex. Like that's not a yeah, noise yeah. that you want to hear. Yeah, I don't during... want to hear a death rattle. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When it. And we're very close now to like the the girls with no skin. We're we're running out of. <laughs> We're running out of extremes to push. It's pretty much it's going to be like the Hellraiser guy, <laughs> just naked musculature. Pinheads, the Cenobites. Yeah. Oh, just naked musculature. Yep. Uh, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy. Time to play with your clitoris. Boom! <laughs> 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 the chains come out. Yeah. yeah. Hook the vagina. Exactly. Um, it's, it's, oh, the, bo- the, the box pl- becomes a dildo. The paint. Yeah. <laughs> the puzzle box. Yeah. It is amazing how quickly uh, human beings, when left to their own devices, they just drill down. <laughs> How deep can we go? That's like the old Lenny Bruce bit, leave a guy on a desert island and then an hour and a half he'll fuck mud. <laughs> Where do we go? Uh, you're, uh, uh, your wife, Sue. <laughs> what an interesting... <laughs> What a weird jo- What a weird step. Fuck mine. Oh, you're white. I'm sorry. In my head, I was. I had anchored on to. <laughs> in my head, I had anchored on to you being at the HBO Emmy party. Oh, okay, Sasha Gray. Speaking of Sasha Gray getting bang- <laughs> so Speaking of Sasha Gray getting ba- gang banged, your grandmother was the I, first. Look, I'm never going to work on HBO. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, my wife. But your wife was when I my first like big agents at the United Talent Agency in 1994. Your yes. wife Sue was one of my agents, and she was a junior agent at yes. the time. Yes, and now runs yeah, then, HBO. Yes, <laughs> one of us has to be successful. <laughs> but you told an amazing story at, at Largo, <laughs> where you were in the car with your kids, and one of them had to pee. And then you had the the Ziploc bag. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We were on the highway. I was like, which that, that could be any story. We were on the highway, uh, and my daughter was really little and really had to pee, and it was like literally couldn't get off, couldn't get off the highway Ugh. going to to Disneyland, and uh, and my wife was like, we had a Ziploc bag with like Doritos in it. We're just like, okay. Go in this, and my wife stood behind her, just and she nearly filled it. <laughs> it's like she had. When did you drink a fish tank? And then she zips it tight, and then it just there's this great picture of like, and then she's like making some big call, and she's on the phone holding like a groaning <laughs> gallon bag of baby pee up to the window. It's like you never know what the people on the other end of the phone are doing. But it's very, it's very strange because like. I'm doing this show at Meltdown now called Carnival. Carnival with yeah, with Keckner. Yeah. David Keckner. And I'll be on the phone and I'm like, look, we need to get two guys to dress up as clowns to do this one thing. It's a celebration of the lowest rung of the show business ladder. And I'm on the phone in the car, and then my wife will get a call and you'll just see M Scorsese. <laughs> I have to take this call. Like, Great. <laughs> We need a bullhorn and a clown suit with a knife hole. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're almost out of time, Data Gold. I do, I do want to do one. Uh, I have so many of your bits that live in the back of my head. Uh, I'm glad one of us does. <laughs> no, please. The uh, I love. I always loved uh, Don Knotts. Could never be a prank caller. Oh, I have a great story. Yeah, it's a great bit, and, uh, and then I'll close with a really sweet story. Uh, uh, I lo- grew up loving Don Knotts. Don Knotts won the Emmy every year. He played Barney Fife on the Andy Griffith Show. Won the Emmy every single year. Uh, and his voice was so incredibly specific that I realized that he could never make obscene phone calls. <laughs> I'm sure he'd like to. There are nights when he's bored up at four in the morning in a dirty bathrobe and he'll just pick up the phone. Well, 
I've been looking at you through the bedroom window. <laughs> Is this Don Knotts? <laughs> <laughs> so, and then I, I did his voice on The Simpsons, and I ended up, uh, my friend uh, Larry Karaszewski, who wrote Ed Wood with wow. Scott Alexander, his writing partner. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they're, they're uh, good friends of mine, and uh, they were do- showing The Ghost and Mr. Chicken at oh, yeah. the Family, a very underrated movie. Very, very funny movie. And, uh, and I was on this little panel talking about Don Knotts, and his daughter came up to me and said, I, I've heard that bit of yours on the, I heard it on the, on, uh, the Raw Dog, uh, that bit you did about my father. And I just tensed up. And she went, oh, it was so funny. Oh, oh that's... And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? you? You must really hate your dad. Wow. Yeah, it was very sweet. Well, Dana Gould, uh, Carnival is a show that you and Keckner do at Meltdown once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, you are at We're Dana started, Gould on the Twitter. Started, at, at Dana J. Gould. Dana J. Twitter. Gould. You're at Dana, Dana J. Gould. Dana Gould is some douchebag realtor. What the <laughs> fuck? Yeah. I don't know he's a douchebag, but it's a safe assumption. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on. I could talk to you for four more hours, but I won't because we don't have the disc space for okay. it. Okay. All right, then. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> Sounds like a chance. I understand. Right, Blame technology. I can hang out with you after. No. You can. No. No, no. no. no, no. It's, if it's not recorded, it's not real. <laughs> No, but I'd love to have you back on the show again. Anytime. If, okay, good. All right. Uh, enjoy your burrito, everyone. Matt, Jonah? Enjoy your fucking burrito. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that code? Is that burrito. sex code? Yeah. Uh, well, there's a neurotoxin that's being slowly pumped into the room, and um, that's we're getting our masks. Oh. <laughs> now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Hover.com. Hover's domain name registration and management that is simple. For 10% off your new domain, go to hover.com slash Nerdist. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven, a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she is willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Reyes Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.